Hello, my name is John Malloy, director of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, based in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to The Moment. In this series, we try to reimagine our post-pandemic life together after our COVID-19 life apart. You're listening to our special series on polarization, where we ask some of Canada's leading thinkers why we're entering our post-COVID world so divided and can faith play a role in bringing us together. Today we are in conversation with Kathleen Wynne, the 25th Premier of Ontario and current member of Provincial Parliament for the riding of Don Valley West. And in the interest of full disclosure, someone I worked very closely with, having had the honour to serve in her cabinet. Kathleen, welcome to the moment. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here with you and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, great. As you know, uh, today you're joining a, a special series that we've put together on the topic of political polarization. Uh, as we emerge from COVID-19, it seems that one of the only things we can all agree upon is how divided we are. There seems to be more and more extreme views out there. And even for those many Canadians who hold middle of the road opinions, things seem to have changed. Polling shows that more and more of us don't see supporters of other political parties or ideologies as merely competitors in the public square. Instead, we see them as enemies who we dislike, and we certainly have little interest of working with them or trying to find common ground. So I want to get your take on this perplexing issue, and I thought I'd start with a very basic question. What does polarization mean to you? Well, to me, it means that um, for whatever the reason is or whatever the endeavor is, we are so two people or two groups or two communities are so far removed from one another that we actually can't find common ground. You know, that we are we are divided by our belief systems or our life experience or all of the above. And um, we are sticking to our our territory and can't we just can't we can't find a way to um, to find a, a, to be to interact with one another. To me, that's what polarization has meant. And I have, you know, I um, I believe that it's um, it's even more exemplified by experiences in the United States with the two party system. And I think that the the attachment to a political party or a set of beliefs, because I don't think it's just political party, um, really. Uh, really gives us an image of what um, what societal polarization um, could look like. And I guess that's the, uh, the the next question I wanted to ask is, how are you seeing it in, in Canada? I mean, we, we think of polarization, we think of the Freedom Convoy on Parliament Hill, we think of the rise of, uh, uh, you know, Max Bernier and the People's Party mm-hmm. and Western separatism and things like that, which are, they're very real. Uh, but are there more subtle ways that uh, we're seeing polarization? And, and certainly from your experience, uh, are, are, are you seeing it out there in, in your community or in your role in the legislature, for example? Well, you know, I think that um, I think, John, it's been building for a number of years. And if you remember when we were in office, there was a lot of conversation about the urban rural divide, you know, that there was um an increasing lack of empathy between people who lived in rural Ontario as opposed to 
urban Ontario. And then that got further complicated by, are we talking about small town Ontario? Are we talking about suburban Ontario? Exactly what are we talking about? Um, which is, I think, an, an issue for this whole discussion. Like, who are we talking about? What are we actually talking about? But um, but I think, so I think that urban-rural um, divide has, has become worse over the time that I've been in politics. Um, I believe that the, the populist sort of, um, it's not a dog whistle necessarily, necessarily, but the, some of the, um, the shout outs that, for example, this current premier Doug Ford made in his campaigning, um, to people who were susceptible to a notion of there's an elite that's against you as opposed to, um, necessarily urban, but, you know, there were there were images of um, people drinking champagne with their I think I think Ford talked about with their pinky finger crooked, you know, and as though somehow there was a group of people that was against the regular people in the province. Um, and you could identify them because of the way they held a, a stem, you know, a, a wine glass. Um, so I think that there I think populism and that notion that there are real people and then there are um, elite who do not have the interests of the real people at heart. And that somehow the elite group of people um, are not only do they not have the, the interests of the real people at heart, but they're actually trying to do something to harm real people. You know, that they are, there's somehow a malicious intent. And I, I really think that has started to take hold in the political discourse in this country, you know, and certainly in, uh, in this province. And I, I think the, the convoy um, and the whole, the whole discussion around politics that has happened because of COVID and the way the conversations have evolved during COVID have again exacerbated this issue. Has there been though in during COVID there were moments when when parties came together and and people worked together. Do you see that that falling apart? I I have to mention uh, your comment uh, two years ago when Doug Ford had said people should go away for March break. And what was interesting is you were interviewed and you said, look, well you can you can explain exactly what you said, but you sort of said give the guy a break. He was trying to. Yeah. Uh, uh, reassure Ontarians. And what I thought was interesting, first of all, the generosity of you saying it, but the amount of news coverage that got that actually someone would be nice to mm, an opposing know. opposing politician. But have you seen those moments when people have come together in the crisis? And are you seeing that that camaraderie or camaraderie is maybe the wrong word, but that that willingness to cooperate start to disappear as as hopefully COVID ends? Yeah, I think it's dissipating. I think early on, and it's interesting, um, I'm, I'm teaching a course right now at U of T, and um, one of the things that the students are reading is a, the chapter in Mark Carney's book, Values, about uh, the preparedness for COVID. And he talks in that chapter about the beginning of COVID and how governments and populations came together, that there was compassion and that people chose to work together as opposed to um, as opposed to uh, engage in conflict. Now, um, that he wrote that book in 2021, and we're now into 2022, or maybe he wrote at the end of 2020. Anyway, it is it is clear to me that whatever that 
whatever that moment was, whatever that consensus that we actually are in this together was, it's starting to fray. And um, I think that the, I think that the, the um, political turmoil around vaccine mandates and the uh, pressure on people to get vaccines and the disdain for people who were not getting vaccinations. Um, I think all of that has really frayed that consensus. I also think, I also think the number of people who were damaged by their businesses not being able to be up and running, the lockdowns had a disproportionate impact in uh, in the in communities. And there, you know, there are many, many of us who have been able to carry on with our lives. We need, we've been able to work from home. If you can't work from home, if you have not been able to work from home and you've actually had to, you know, be in a hospital emergency room or in an ICU or you've had to work through construction or, you know, the, the whole myriad jobs that that can't be done from home, you've had a totally different experience of the last two years than people who have been able to stay at home. So I think those things have frayed that unity over the last two years as well. But can I can I turn turn it around and maybe be I don't know, maybe it's not being provocative because I certainly hear it from a lot of people. They they on the one hand are are concerned about the divisions in our society and the polarization. On the other hand, though, they say I'm right and they're wrong. And, you know, as I as I watch an interview on TV, let's go for the jugular, someone who's opposed to covid vaccines or someone who's trying to downplay the medical emergency. I've had friends and colleagues say to me, you know what, they're wrong. And, mm-hmm. you know, if that's a polarized society and it's not simply that's obviously a huge uh, issue. And, and there is this kind of binary aspect to it. But certainly some of the social justice issues that have come forward. There's a lot of activists who are saying this is not a time for us to be nice to each other. This is not a time for compromise. This is not a time for listening. We've been listening for too long. It's a time for action. It's a time for huge systemic change. And guess what? There's there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are made angry because of this. And so be it. So how do you how do you fit that in, in into the equation? Well, I don't you know, there are there are social movements like the anti-racism movement, like, um, you know, violence against women. I mean, you and I are having this conversation on International Women's Day. So I think there are huge changes that need to happen, John. So I don't argue. I don't argue with that. And if, you know, if I thought that um, everybody just being angry and staking out their position and saying, I'm right and you're wrong, if I thought that would work and it would actually lead to, lead to systemic change, then then I would be more optimistic about the possibility of success of those people who say, you know, you're right and I'm wrong. But I don't think that's how it works. I don't think that um, having a, you know, a, a ping pong game as opposed to trying to um, as opposed to trying to find some way of meeting in the middle. I just don't I don't think it I don't think it moves us forward. Um, I mean, unless we're talking about having a revolution, but even revolution, you could argue you don't actually necessarily move to where you want to be, you know. So so I I think that we really need we and by we, I mean, everybody, we need to find ways to um, to humanize each other. You know, I've moved out of the city now and I have the interesting experience of being in a small community 
um, people who have never voted for me, but who know who I am. I mean, even though I've grown my hair and COVID and all of it, I still am recognizable to a lot of people. And I, you know, I feel the hostility often, but I feel like it's my mission to say hello and to be friendly and to try even behind my mask to try to humanize a liberal in a sea of pretty right wing conservatives, you know, um, and and I I mean that obviously that's a that's a microcosm of what we're talking about. But I think that in our schools, in our um, and I think we're going to talk about faith institutions, you know, I think wherever we gather, we need to find ways to not let this fossilization set in, you know, I don't think we can, we can allow ourselves to, to um, write in stone what we believe and who we are without, without having, uh, without listening to one another. I mean, how can we say there's been enough listening and we're not going to, we're not going to do it anymore? Well, that, how has that served us in history, you know, to not actually listen to different points of view? I just, a, I don't think it's in our DNA as Canadians. I don't think it's, I don't think it's who we are. I think that we, I think that we historically, uh, if you think about the beginning of this country, I mean, people came from other places and had to and, and did find a way to um, initially, it didn't last for long, but initially to work with the people who are already here with Indigenous people. Indigenous people helped us the people who came from from other places. We didn't die because we actually had a way of, um, you know, we found a way to to interact with Indigenous people. And then and then that all went bad. I know that. And, and the relationship was absolutely shattered if it ever was positive. But um, but then the country formed by, you know, compromise between French and English, Catholic and Protestant. So I mean, I think we, I think we have a history of finding a way to work across barriers, whether they're cultural, whether they're linguistic. Um, and so I think we have to, I think we have to tap into that. Maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm just too old to have this conversation, but that is, that is my hope. When I look at my grandchildren, um, that is my hope for them. But you know, you, uh, you, actually uh, walk the talk. Um, you know, I remember I, I had left uh, the Ontario legislature, but there was a very emotional debate in this province around uh, updating the sex ed curriculum. And mm -hmm. I always remember reading in the media, I mean, there were some, there were some pretty strong voices against you, some personal attacks. I mean, it was just a very unpleasant period. And yet I remember reading about you having a, a roundtable with uh, some of the greatest uh, opponents and, and the strongest vo uh, voices. And I was very impressed that you would you would sit with people who who held views very, very different from your own. So, John, this this is kind of core to my belief system about life, about politics. Um, you know, for 10 years before I got into elected office, I worked as a mediator. So my my job was to walk into situations where people were disagreeing with one another. And when you work as a com community mediator, you're walking into very divided family situations or very divided 
um, board or community situations. Um, I worked in schools and, uh, you know, tried to tried to help staff and kids resolve conflicts. So, um, so I have a deep, deep belief that conflict is where transformation can happen, that conflict should be something we learn to embrace and understand. I had I had, you know, lots of debates with my detail when I was premier and with my staff throughout my political career about going out and talking to protesters and being part of um, the conversation because I had been a protester. You know, my my political start was protesting the government of Mike Harris and walking picket lines with teachers. So conflict, conflict is conflict is absolutely natural to the human condition. But I think we're afraid of it. You know, I think we've allowed ourselves to be afraid of conflict. And so by being afraid of it and by not not teaching ourselves and not allowing ourselves to um, to work with it, we actually make it worse because we we increase polarization by walking away from people who disagree with us instead of wading in. And, you know, I grew up in a family where. There was lots of impolite conversation, you know, <laughs> there was, there were, we, we weren't very, sometimes we weren't very civil, but I learned that you don't die if you have a heated discussion or there's, there's fundamental disagreement, you know, that you can actually get through that and you get to the other side of it. And there's a crucible there where actually really intimate knowledge of people and a deeper understanding is possible. So I think that has to apply to the, the broader community. One of the things I worried about with the, um, the convoy in Ottawa at the, at the beginning, I mean, it got very nasty, but I worried that some of our political leaders didn't go and not necessarily wade into the conflict, but at least talk to some of the people who were there because there were people there for lots of different reasons. I'm not condoning the behavior. I'm not condoning the, 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 the violent kind of language or images, but I, but I am saying that in a group of people that large who are that upset, there must be something that we have to listen to. No, I, and I mean, I, you know, walk down memory lane, I guess, with us, but I remember the plowing match. Uh, which, you know, people aren't familiar where uh, it's basically a gathering of uh, the agricultural community in, in Ontario. And you were premier and there were uh, individuals that were protesting windmills in, in rural mm-hmm. areas. And I always remember uh, uh, you engaged with them. And in your in your remarks, you said, hey, you know, I'm listening. I'm, I'm hearing mm-hmm. what you have to say. And I, I think it was a, a very welcome tone that we, we we often don't see these days in politics, and I guess that's sort of the, the 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 next question is how do we divide this up? What 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 should our political leaders be doing? What should we as citizens be doing? What should activists be doing? Because I think sometimes we, we 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 let them off the hook. I mean, you know, just as we need to listen to uh, uh, some of the voices, not all of the voices of the convoy. There were extreme voices that that you know I think we can all agree. Uh, don't need to be heard, but but they also have to listen to us a little bit. But but how do you divide that up? What's the what's the role of the politician, the citizen, and the activist? Well, I think the I think the role of everybody who has any kind of convening power and politicians and activists they share that right. We have convening power, and so do teachers and um, and I think I think our job is 
to bring together people who don't disagree with one another. I mean, there is no point in um, if we have that that opportunity in the real world, there's no point in recreating what happens on social media because on social media, what happens, as we know, is people talk to other people who agree with themselves or they they send out vile miss, misses um, against the people who they disagree with. But mostly we're in an echo chamber and we, that's what the algorithms set up. You know, they set up a, I mean, you know, I, I find on Facebook, there's a picture of a dress that I didn't even know I wanted before I, you know, and, and there it is in front of me. How do they know? So we get our biases reinforced. So I think in the real world, our job is to bring together people who, disagree with one another, help them. And, and by help them, I just mean facilitate because I think people who have convening opportunities can facilitate conversations and demonstrate in real time that it is possible to have a civil conversation. You know, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that I think it was a Super Bowl ad. Was it, and it might've been for beer, but it was um, this ad uh, that that brought I don't know if you've seen it on um, online, but it brought together people who who had totally diametrically opposed ideas, and it showed videos of them saying horrible racist and misogynist things, and then unbeknownst to the people, they they met people who had these opposing views and became friends. And then they were shown the videos of the horrible things that they had said, but they'd made a connection. They'd made a human connection. And, and, you know, I've had the experience, John, of being on a radio show where, um, you know, I was on Ontario today just after uh, the election in 2018. And I was being asked about all the vile things that were said about me at rallies and the, the locker up language that was used and, and all of that stuff. And I said, you know, I believe that if I met those people face to face, we that's not the conversation we'd have. That's not what they would be saying to me. And one of the guys who was at one of those rallies, one of those Ford rallies, actually called me, called on the line, called on the phone on the show and said, you know, I was there. And it's true. You get carried away and you don't mean it personally. So we've got to set up opportunities for kids and for adults to connect with one another in a human way. Otherwise, otherwise, I don't think there is a way to break down the polarization. You know, I, I don't know any other way than actually getting to know someone as a human being. And I'll just make one more point. In my lived experience, having been a lesbian running for office in a riding that had been held by a conservative that had a very strong, um, Muslim uh, population. I was told by the Liberal Party in Ontario, you know, you can't win in that riding because you're gay and there's, you know, there's this, there's this population that is not going to vote for you. Um, and the only way I was able to bridge that gap, even though it was overstated by the party and it was overstated by the people who, who saw the Muslim community as a monolithic group, but I had one-on-one -on -one conversations with people throughout the whole riding, you know, and I had very tough conversations with some um, men from the mosque who were, of course, they, they were not inclined to vote for me, but we were able to get to know one another. We became friends and that's how we bridged the divide. So I've, 
I've seen it happen in my own life. And I think that it it is that kind of connection that we have to find a way to um, to uh, in. I don't. I don't want to create in our in our communities. No, that's a, well. I want to, but I want to uh, throw another. Well, it's maybe not a curveball, but as you know, uh, the sponsor. You know, we're sp- the sponsor organization. I guess of this podcast is a uh, a, a faith based uh, institution, Martin Luther University College. And in fact, you came down. We were so excited to uh, to welcome you a few years ago, just before the pandemic. I think to talk about. Yeah. Uh, uh, the role that faith has played in your life and career. But what do you think? Uh, can faith and religious uh, communities contribute to what you're talking about? This this sort of healing of uh, of, of divisions, recognizing that you know, and I, I admitted that faith can sometimes lead to more polarization. But is there a positive role for it? Yeah, I think I think faith communities, and again, I've seen this happen. You know, I've seen. Um, I've seen members of the Muslim uh, faith, members of Islam in my riding join hands around a a synagogue, you know, when there have been anti-Semitic events. So I think that there is absolutely a role for um, faith communities to play. I think faith communities have some of that convening power that I was talking about. And there's absolutely no reason that uh, members of faith communities can't come together and, uh, and find their, find their common ground. And that, you know, that's just schools are a possibility. Political venues are possible, but faith communities, I think absolutely can play a role. No, well, that's, uh, you know, I, I, I'm struck by your optimism <laughs> because it is, it's, it's been such a, uh, a, a tumultuous, uh, period of time. I mean, you know, and obviously the, everyone, Thinks about the Freedom Convoy, but it was almost like the Freedom Convoy was the, uh, I don't know, a pressure valve or something that came up because the last few months have been, uh, have, have, there's just been everyone on edge. But I, you know, I guess to, to, we're, we're, we're running short of time, but, but just tell me a little bit about your optimism and, and, and how you see things heading. Well, you know, I'm not, I, I, I'm trying not to be naive, John, but I, but I also am um, I'm also somebody who when when people say, well, you know, there's no hope or, you know, we, we have to we have to just accept the way things are. I've never been somebody who has accepted that. You know, that's not it's there just have been too many. There have been too many times in my life where um, someone has said, well, that's just the way it is. And I've seen things change that um that i think i think we have to we have to be optimistic and we have to find the we have to find the levers that we can pull to make that optimism a reality um you know there are there are people in this country who and in and in countries around the world who are who try to bring um palestinian and israeli people together to try to have a conversation. I mean, there are there are interfaith dialogues. There are um, there are community people who work in in polarized gang situations. Like wherever there's conflict, wherever there is um, uh, a, a community that's divided, there are people who are trying to break down those divisions. And uh, you know, I think. 
for those of us from the Christian tradition, I actually think that's what Jesus actually called on us to do, you know? And I'm I'm not I'm not somebody who I'm not somebody who is deeply, as you know, I'm I don't spend a lot of time in um places of organized religion, but I but I know enough about um about my faith to know that to throw up our hands and say we're gonna give up on humanity, we're gonna give up on the world, that's not that's not what we've been asked to do. That's not why we're on the planet. And so I think we have to keep trying. We have to use our own experience and we have to use the experience of people around us to try to find a way through this. Because wow. how can we how can we say we're just going to give up on on any kind of civil engagement? How how does that make any sense and how how um bleak would our lives be to move forward and think I'm only going to spend time with people who agree with me, who've had the same lived experiences I have, who come, I don't know, who drink the same drinks or drive the same cars. Like, why would I want to do that? That is, that sounds like a very dull existence to me. Well, I think you're, uh, you're, 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 Optimism and your outlook and 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 your advice is is so important. Um, you know, the point of this this podcast is really to think about what comes next because so many uh, have said we can't go back. Uh, and this, I think, is is an area which we have to think about. As I said, not just the the topic of the discussions we have, but 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 how we have uh, uh, the discussion. Mm -hmm. So. You know, I want to thank you for 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 sharing these insights. Uh, you know, as I said uh, a few minutes ago, I think you always uh, uh, walked the talk when you were premier, and you know your your insights and uh, your optimism for the future and your advice on how we can move forward is so important. So, thank you for uh, helping us to to kick off this uh, this series and. Uh, uh, for all that you've done, your your public service, and uh, I know no matter what role you have going forward, you're gonna you're gonna be building bridges. Well, thank you, John. My pleasure, and I really look forward to listening to the other people you get on to talk about this. This is this is the most important issue that we have to deal with, I think, in uh, in our in this current moment. So, thank you for asking me. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Moment a production of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, the founding institution of Wilfrid Laurier University, located in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Visit our website, publicethics.ca, for resources and more information on other podcasts. The technical producer of today's recording was Jackson Del Cero, with support from Alex Kinsella. Creative Commons music was provided by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Thanks for joining us.